This is an ABC podcast. Iorana Maloni and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol, here on a beautiful Monday morning. Hopefully you had a great weekend. Uh, well, today on the show, we've got Ramsey's 20th anniversary in the Solomon Islands, a celebration of partnership and respect. Gold mine to reopen in Papua New Guinea. And is the Pacific ready for El Nino? We'll find out more. For any of our stories, make sure you head to our website. Just type ABC Pacific Beat in your search engine and feel free to share across all your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Today marks the 20th anniversary of the Australian-led regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands, better known as Ramsey. A policing operation played a critical role in restoring Solomon Islands law and order following a violent civil conflict between 1998 and 2003, which ceased in 2017. But as Mackenzie Smith reports, Ramsey remains an influential force in Solomon Islands politics. It's been six years since Ramsey wrapped up its operation in Solomon Islands. What the billion-dollar regional intervention means for the country now depends on who you ask. Now, increasingly, you have a younger generation, a much, much more younger generation for kids nowadays. Ramsey's history. That's Dr. Tarsisius Kabutaulaka, the director of the Centre for Pacific Islands Studies at the University of Hawaii. Still, for many other Solomon Islanders, Australian uniforms on the streets were a mainstay of the 21st century. Around 7,270 Australian personnel deployed to the Solomon Islands as part of Ramsey. Dave Peebles, director of the Australia Pacific Security College at the Australian National University, says the Ramsey mission fostered a sense of Pacific partnership across the 15 nations that assisted. The legacy today really is a, uh, is, is a normal country that can decide for itself uh, its own future, uh, kids going to school, health services, uh, businesses working, and I think that's a really important and tremendous legacy. He says a defining feature of Ramsey was its long-term investment. Ramsey was a 14-year bipartisan commitment to regional security across many budget cycles. There's Australia's Pacific policy before and after Ramsey. Ramsey was a decisive break from Australia's hands-off, benign neglect approach. Many of Australia's current Pacific policies like labour mobility, infrastructure cooperation and budget support uh, are thanks to the more proactive era that Ramsey launched. Solomon Islands policing has been in the spotlight recently with a controversial police cooperation agreement struck with China in July. The deal's announcement came as Australia tries to reinforce its position as Solomon Islands' main security partner. Tarsisius Kabutaulaka says the geopolitical competition has undermined efforts to bring peace to Solomon Islands. So what we've seen in the case of Solomon Islands, I think, is an increasing militarization of the Solomon Islands police force, uh, not only by China, but by Australia as well in terms of supplying, you know, the kinds of weapons uh, that they would otherwise not have supplied had there been no China. He says development partners could learn from Ramsey's values in today's climate. One of the things that they did, and, and, and for which a lot of Solomon Islanders were very happy and continue to be really appreciative of, was 
collecting weapons and destroying them. And that was a big thing. I mean, in terms of the visibility that people see Ramsey personnel doing that, setting fire on guns, it's said that not long after Ramsey's withdrawal, Australia is arming the same institution that initially also was involved in supplying arms that ended up in communities. Gordon Darcy Lilo, who served as Prime Minister of Solomon Islands from 2011 to 2014, agrees. He says the kind of great power security that is playing out is unhelpful for the country. We have those basics, you know, established, you know, during the Ramsey time, and we should maintain them and then move forward uh, because, you know, this, this is a security situation that is built along the conviction and the participation of the people. Gordon Darcy Lilo says he hopes the anniversary today will be an opportunity for Solomon Islands and its partners to reflect on Ramsey's values. That is Mackenzie Smith there with that report. Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister James Marape has called for an end to tribal fighting so that the country's second largest mine can reopen. Locals say the sudden closure of the Pukera Cold Mine has seen an increase in violent crime, unemployment and social issues in the area. With a deal to resume operations come this September, locals hope for better times ahead. When the Pogara gold mine suddenly closed in 2020, things went south, according to local resident Pat Neoni. It has really affected the people in the area in terms of the major thing was the law and order. He's part of the Pogara Restoring Justice Initiative. The school shut down, the health services shut down, the store supplies chains shut down, high prices of goods, fuel. It really had a big impact to the livelihood of the community, especially the landowners, uh, really suffered. The lucrative gold mine ceased operations three and a half years ago when the PNG government refused to renew the mining lease. At the time, Prime Minister James Marape said he wanted a better deal for PNG. Jenny Coppy, chair of the Family Sexual Violence Unit in Pogara, says the closure has affected women and children in particular. Uh, we want a bank and school and hospitals to be back because especially mothers and children are dying because there's no hospital uh, in Pogara. In 2021, the government struck a deal with Canadian mining company Barrick and partner Zijin, granting PNG a majority stake in the mine. The companies are now hoping to resume operations by September. Pat Neoni says it's been a long time coming. Everybody's all sort of eager to see the project start because the, the, there'll be benefits, there'll be employment. Uh, everybody's sort of excited. There is excitement. The PM visited Enga province late last week, holding a security forum where he appealed to locals to stop fighting. In a media statement, he said... I appeal to you, the people of Pogera and the surrounding communities, to stop fighting and do away with the guns and tap into spin-off benefits from the mine. Let your children live in peace and get the benefits from the mine and stop the killings. Mr Marape apologised for the mine's closure, saying the short-term pain would result in long-term gains. Professor John Burton, an expert on the social impacts of mining, says tribal conflict in Pogara predates the mine's initial opening in 1990. These are very deep-seated problems and 
you can say that um, the mine or the heightened flows of wealth that the mine provides have exaggerated uh, these tr uh, traditional uh, tensions that have always existed. And so how likely is it that, that the companies will be able to reopen this mine in the third quarter of this year as, as, as has been flagged? I don't think there's a problem with them opening. I think there's always been a, a will to keep the mine operating. The national government's on board with that. The local landowners are on board with that and the provincial government's on board with that. What closes and has closed the mine on a number of occasions are disputes over the share of benefits. And that is Professor John Burton from the University of Queensland. That report also by Marion Farr and Belinda Cora. Tune in to SBS Samoa News on ABC Radio Australia. SBS Samoa News features independent news and stories connecting you to life in Australia and Samoan-speaking Australians by our friends at SBS Australia. SBS Samoa News. Tune in Mondays and Thursdays at 6.05am Samoan time for one hour of news in the Samoan language on ABC Radio Australia. And welcome back to Pacific Beat. Uh, just in overnight, New Zealand police have released the names of two men killed in a shooting uh, in Auckland, or at the Auckland construction rather site, on Thursday. 45-year-old Tupunga Sipiliano and 44-year-old Tupunga uh, Sibiliano of Water Downs lost their lives when a 24-year-old gunman fired multiple shots in the CBD on Thursday. Uh, police do extend a sincere condolences to the families of those men, uh, as we do here as well at Pacific Beat. That's right, it is that time for our news wrap and I'm joined by producer Carl Evans uh, who's going to give us the latest. Uh, welcome this morning. Thank you, Amy. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. You had a good weekend? I did, actually, yeah. <laughs> nice and nice and relaxing. Had a, had a board games night uh, on Saturday. I even even managed to, to win a couple of games, which was which was great news. Well, we're going to have to have a bit of a competition then. <laughs> <laughs> I love board games. But look, let's get into the news wrap. I believe PNG's police commissioner has issued uh, a direction to resolve a fuel rationing standoff between the Bank of PNG and Puma Energy, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So their main energy supplier, uh, Puma Energy, uh, David Manning has ordered the Bank of Papua New Guinea to immediately facilitate a foreign currency exchange to Puma Energy uh, for crude oil and refined petroleum products. So that's been revealed in a statement from the Royal PNG Constabulary. Uh, and it states he's exercised this move, this move under what's called the National Pandemic Act uh, that is actually still in force. Uh, this act makes him the controller uh, as the PNG economy still recovers from COVID. And he said simply because of the economic damage that's already being caused during that pandemic, he won't let this disagreement between these two major entities continue um, uh, and, and also continue to hurt the economy. He said ultimately they're big organisations. Uh, they both should have systems in place to prevent these kinds of disputes uh, because when they do, you know, things like fuel supplies are reduced uh, and livelihoods are ultimately put at risk. Carl, has the company actually responded though? No. 
No, not that I can see, but it is still uh, pretty pretty fresh news. Um, Manning did go on to say it's imperative that they do put in some sort of process in place so it doesn't happen again. Um, and yeah, and uh, energy security is, you know, like it is to many countries, central to stability. So the government, uh, hence why the government has taken that, has taken this action. Yeah, thank you for that first story. Uh, we head to Nauru because it's revealed a disgraced cryptocurrency mogul uh, has plans to buy Nauru. Why is that? Well, yeah, had had plans to buy uh, Nauru. This is um, this is quite quite an incredible story, to be honest, Aggie. Um, so Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, who's made yeah uh, lots of headlines recently, he founded FTX Exchange, uh, that huge cryptocurrency uh, company which has recently fallen into a lot of trouble. Uh, he'd planned to buy Nauru and build a fallout shelter uh, in case the world ended. Um, So this was published by The Guardian after details came to light during the lawsuit filed by FTX against the 31-year-old. The lawsuit revealed that a memo created by Bankman-Fried's younger brother, Gabriel, um, and it detailed those plans, and the plan was to purchase Nauru uh, in order to construct a bunker or a shelter that would be used for some event where they, they, they felt that 50 to 99% of the world uh, could perish uh, and they would build that to ensure uh, the company's executive um, assistance survive, essentially. Uh, it even gets more wacky. The memo also noted plans to build a lab for uh, human genetic enhancement. And, uh, and all this comes after uh, the 31-year-old was, uh, yeah, sensationally arrested uh, in the Bahamas over allegations he'd stolen uh, customer funds where he was later extradited to the US uh, and has pled not guilty in that, uh, that, that lawsuit is currently unfolding. Yeah, that is crazy. I'm wondering what damages are FTX seeking, though. Yeah, so uh, his successor, John Ray, uh, he, he seeks to, to recoup all those damages uh, caused by Bankman-Fried. Uh, so that's approximately $1 billion. Um, and, and already the lawsuit has called it one of the largest financial frauds uh, in history. But, uh, yeah, it sounds like there was another agenda at play. <laughs> well, who doesn't want a bunker, though? Wouldn't that be exciting? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it definitely sounds cool, I suppose. Uh, look, and repair work on the Solomon Islands underwater telecu- uh, sorry, telecommunications cable. Uh, that should be completed this week. Uh, is that right? Yeah, long last. So uh, the head of the Solomon Islands submarine cable company uh, has confirmed as much. Uh, that cable was damaged back on May 10 uh, when a Taiwanese fishing boat uh, dropped anchor in a no-anchoring zone, uh, severing that cable at the landing site there. It, uh, it hampered uh, domestic internet services as well as impacted a, a number of businesses. Uh, and, and what's worse, because the cable in Tonga had still was still being fixed from that volcano, there was a huge delay in getting the repair ship out there to go and fix it. Um, but luckily, though, that repair ship uh, arrived in the country on Wednesday. Uh, it's currently doing an assessment, and, uh, and that repair work should be done in the next few days. Beautiful. I appreciate the news wrap this morning, Carl. <laughs> Thank you very good. much, Aggie. No worries. Uh, this is Pacific Beat. Days like these, the Pacific is a program about those days that go spectacularly wrong or go brilliantly right. The best days, the worst days. One Pacific person with one story about the day when everything changed. It's about the risks we take and the decisions we make. Chance encounters, secrets revealed, sometimes funny, sometimes scary, sometimes both but always the best story you'll hear all week. Tune in to Days Like These, the Pacific, Tuesday mornings at 9.30 on ABC Radio Australia. 
Now to weather. Our Nino has arrived in the Pacific and may bring with it three to four tropical cyclones later this year. That's according to Laitia Fifita, Deputy Director of the Tonga Meteorological Service. It's the first time in three years the weather pattern has coincided with the tropical cyclone season, which usually takes place between November and April. Laitia Fifita told Mackenzie Smith the Pacific should prepare for a unique challenge. We are looking at around, roughly statistically speaking, at around three to four tropical cyclones uh, on El Nino years. Uh, that is the average uh, for Tonga. And um, two of those cyclones could be severe in terms of category three, four, and five. So those are the, the average statistical figures of the number of TCs or uh, tropical cyclones that we are expecting to affect Tonga on El Nino years. But also, not only that, but uh, we have uh, kickstart our awareness, our preparatory works uh, within our office, in the National Emergency Management Office, calling in uh, clusters. The cluster leads, uh, for example, um, safety and protection clusters, food and livelihood security clusters, uh, communications clusters, and so on. There are actually 11 clusters within the framework of the emergency management office here in Tonga. And we are working at the moment as we speak uh, to develop or to review or to improve and strengthen um, disaster response and action plans. Because we are focusing our our efforts at the moment at the preparatory, uh, preparation stages um, because the, if, the effects of El Nino could be delayed because, you know, um, we could um, have the El Nino phenomena established or declared, but the impacts will roll in in the next three to six or longer months later. And so is this the time for people to start to prepare for these cyclones and, and what can they do in this space? Yes, uh, we firmly believe that uh, this is the time to carry out uh, these early warning um, actions. Um, It is very timely uh, because um, not only that the country is still in the recovery stage uh, from the previous uh, volcanic and tsunami eruption about a a year ago, but then um, it is in the framework of the multi-hazard uh, early warning systems uh, that drives our our awareness and our preparation stages, um, especially in critical sectors of the country, uh, like you mentioned, the agriculture, fisheries, um, infrastructure, tourism, health, and and so on. Uh, we have uh, formed um, several um, working groups uh, with these um, relevant uh, sectors providing them with the latest weather and climate uh, information is basically uh, for them uh, to tailor it into their planning and decision-making uh, for the, in terms of three to six months' time. And uh, there's ongoing uh, TV and radio programs uh, locally engaging uh, local farmers. Um, because, um, for example, uh, I'll give you an example um, one of the impacts here in the agricultural sector here in Tonga, uh, the need uh, to change the, the style of farming 
uh, to plant or to grow um, drought resilient crops, you know, uh, crops that are resilient uh, when there is uh, less rainfall uh, to be expected uh, to be multicultural. So when a particular crop fails, there's also backup uh, kind of crop uh, to continue. Uh, not only that, but um, we have also uh, given some um, advisories to the fishery sector. It is expected and it is normal during El Nino years that the tuna fish in our in our ocean, in our waters here in Tonga, will tend uh, to migrate. So in terms of long-line fishing and, um, and those type of activities, um, we're giving those uh, alerts, advices, basically uh, impact-based uh, warnings and services for the people in those sectors to better plan um, other, um, other alternatives and so on. And that is Deputy Director of the Tonga Meteorological Service speaking with Mackenzie Smith there with that report. Wow, Fiji and Manusamoa, they're gathering momentum ahead of the Rugby World Cup after recorded big wins in the opening round of the Pacific Nations Cup on the weekend. The Flying Fijians scored three early tries on route to a 36-20 win. Meanwhile, Manusamoa overcame Japan in Japan in a 24-22 nail-biter. Gregor Paul is a rugby writer for the New Zealand Herald and a very staunch advocate for Pacific rugby. Joins us on the line now to take us through both matches. With that, I say, uh, kia ora, Gregor. How are you doing? Oh, very well, thank you. Hey, look, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Uh, if we can start in Fiji, though, where the Flying Fijians overcame the Ikaretahi, how big of a win was that for them? Oh, look, good win, big win. Uh, it, there, there, there's no doubt that uh, Tonga, through the change in eligibility laws, have been able to gather up, you know, a few former superstars who, well, I shouldn't call them former superstars because a few of them are still very much of that ilk. So... Look, that, that was a really impressive performance, I felt, by Fiji to uh, come out on their home ground, play play a, a highly motivated, um, well-structured, highly physical Tongan team who had a bit of magic in their back line as well. And I don't think Fiji were ever really under too much pressure to, to get that done. And they, they played a brand of rugby, which I felt was very similar to well, not very similar, but they had similarities certainly to how we've seen the Drua play throughout Super Rugby Pacific. So there was a lot of structure to their game, but it didn't hold hold them back from you know that that what we would call typical you know Fijian flair. We saw plenty of that as well. So it was it was it was a lovely mix of rugby. Yeah. Uh, Gregor, I have to ask though, because you know, as a proud Tongan myself, I mean, what could have the Igaretahi have done to have possibly won that game? Oh, look, I think the Tonga are on a journey here. You know, this, this is early doors for them, and I think both teams, you know, would fully admit that they're that they're building towards a World Cup campaign. So, I wouldn't I wouldn't get too distressed yet. I think T- Tonga have pulled a lot of different players in from a lot of different parts of the world. I know they've had a training camp in Tonga for the last few weeks, but you know, a lot of these guys are new to each other. They're not new necessarily to Test rugby, um, and and they've got a super tough group when they get over to the World Cup. So they're building towards that. Like I think they were, I think they'd be a wee bit surprised that they were outgunned physically at times by Fiji, which I don't think will have sat terribly well with the Tongan forwards at times. They won't be, they won't be happy about that. So that's an area for them to work on. But look, it's all about 
It's about building accuracy, cohesion, being more clinical, being more precise. I mean, these are things that every team in this part of the world is trying to get right at the moment because they've only got a handful of games before they go to the tournament. So, like, I think I think both, even though Tonga didn't win the game, I think they'll be reasonably happy with what they put out there because they've certainly given themselves a benchmark uh, and a basis on which they can build some more elements into the game. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, look, it was the first game, though, for Simon uh, Raiwalui as coach of Fiji. I mean, how did the team look under him? They look organised, you know, and I, I think that the magic, we saw this with the Drua, that the, it's, it's a difficult art with Fiji because you, uh, you, you've got players that are just instinctive and magical all across the field. So you don't want to get too structured with them, uh, but you need enough uh, you know, set piece stability, enough organisation so it's not just, you know, sort of wild west when you play. There needs to be a basis on which the flair can, um, you know, be seen and be applied. So I thought he I thought he did a pretty good job at, look, their lineup was good, their scrum was good, they they were pretty physical in the tackled ball area where you need to, you need to get all these areas right technically. There needs to be a bit of accuracy there. They got all that bit right. And they were willing to, uh, you know, chance their hand a wee bit and, and, and play a little bit wider and faster when the opportunity came. So the balance of the game was good, which clearly is, you know, that's a coaching tick because that's got to be, you know, drilled into the players. They've got to understand the way the team wants to play. So I think he would be pretty comfortable with the fact that how he wants the team to play is clearly being understood by the team. And when you're a coach, that's a huge part of the battle is just sort of communicating what it is that you want them to do and then seeing it happen out on the field. You'll be feeling, well, there's a good connection there between coach and uh, and players, and, and that will board well for them as they go through to the World Cup. Yeah, with the four debutants, uh, including Caleb Muntz at fly half, how do you think he did? He was steady. Like he brought look, what you kind of want, especially when a, a fly half doesn't have a huge amount of experience. You just want them to feel comfortable playing at that level. He looked comfortable. Uh, he was organised. Um, you know, he did his job. I, I think there's a bit more in him. He also kicked his goals. I think mostly. So yeah, look, he. It's it's about running a game plan and putting the team in all the right places. Uh, not taking too many risks, but enough that you can you know. Uh, bring that creativity into the game. And I think he'd be reasonably happy. And I think Simon would be reasonably happy with how he played. Mm. Uh, I'm wondering sometimes, does home advantage help towards these games? I mean, you've got the Fijians and you've got the home crowd. Do you often think that helps with the win? Oh, I think it does in Fiji. Yeah, I mean, look at look at the Drua in, in Super Rugby. How many, you know, how many teams did they knock over... Uh, you know, they beat the Crusaders, they beat the Hurricanes, or the Rebels. I can't remember. They kept they kept winning at home, didn't they? And yep, look, the, the, climactically, the conditions are a wee bit uh, different in Fiji. That helps, but the crowd have become, you know, the 16th player in Fiji, whether it's the Drua or whether it's the Flying Fijians. Uh, they're the best supporters in the world right now. If every other nation could tap into what Fijians have on the sidelines and the support that they have and the passion that they bring... Like I, I haven't been over there to, to to see a game, but I imagine if you're an opposition player, it, at a, it's probably quite intimidating. You're aware that you're away from home, and if you're the home team, yeah, like I think that would be pretty inspiring to know that you've got that level of passion and support behind you. So I certainly think in Fiji. At the moment, it's a huge advantage for them having that amazing crowd behind them. 
Well, I must say, look, let's move on to Samoa. Now, they weren't in front of their home crowd, but they got that two-point win in Japan. You think that was expected? No. No, look, obviously there was a red card in that game, which... Uh, you, you, you can't go past it to some extent because rugby doesn't really work when there's a, a, a numerical imbalance. So you have to be, yeah, have to take that into account. But but even though there was a red card and Japan had to play most of the game with 14 players, it doesn't mean that the victory just gets handed to you as the you know the team with the numerical advantage. Samoa still had to graft and grind, and and grunt their way to victory and, and hang in there. They showed a lot of resilience. Because uh, Japan are look, they're they're a good team, and they they they're also probably a little bit further ahead in the preparation. They had a couple of games against an All Black 15 over the last two weeks, so they they had a bit of preparation and, and game time behind them. Uh, I, I was really impressed with the way that Samoa just stuck at the at the task that they had to do, and eventually just they they ground down Japan. They knew that their opportunity was going to come if they kept to the game plan. Uh, and, and lo and behold, it did. You know, they got the half chance down the left wing there, scored the try, went in front, and were good enough to hold on. So, look, uh, that, that's a big win because that, that's a very good Japanese team. So, well done, Samoa. Yeah, well, that's it. I feel like these Pacific nations are really wanting to gun for it. I mean, if they're trying to, you know, prep themselves for the World Cup. Uh, the Pacific Nations Cup, though, that actually continues this weekend. I mean, what's that fixture looking like going forward? Yeah, look, I think uh, if you're looking at who might take that out, uh, Fiji are going to be very difficult to stop, I think. I think Fiji, uh, the quality of player that they have in their in their overall squad, they've got a depth that probably the other two, if not three teams, don't have. Uh, I, and, I, and I just think the, the way that the Drua have given a basis uh, to a whole new group of players to you know, to learn about professional rugby, to be in a professional system at home, getting used to you know what that world looks like. The conditioning's much better, and then they've brought back you know all the various guys that they've got playing across Europe. Um, that gives them a that gives them a different uh, type of player. You know, people a lot of the guys from Europe are playing in France and they're used to a more physical grinding type of rugby. The guys that are playing for the Drewer are used to playing a sort of faster, more open game. And I know talking to Simon that, you know, he, he's bringing those two types of players together and it gives him the ability to play a lot of different styles of rugby. And I think Fiji right now look like they're going to be particularly difficult to beat. But look, I think both Samoa and Tonga have got plenty of personnel changes that they can make. I think they're both experimenting a little bit, checking out guys who they're going to take to the World Cup, who's who, what's what. So they'll, they'll, they'll probably mix up the selections and that, that, you know, that might give them both a, a different feel and look as this competition goes on. Gregor, I want to ask, though, the, the whole thing around the new eligibility rules that have come into effect. You know, obviously you've got nations like Donga mm. who have actually really benefited from it. How much more competitive will that make the World Cup then? Well, hopefully a lot more because there's certainly it's certainly in the Tongan uh, team, there, there are enough uh, seriously good players to make a, a material difference to their ability to be a competitive team. I mean, Charles Pieta and Malachi Fekatoa, both still very much top of their game, guys that are playing good rugby in Europe or Charles is off to Japan. But, you know, they're still playing at the very pinnacle of the club game. You know, they've got guys like Vaya Fafita, great athlete. Um, uh, also, the the big Wallaby lock, whose name has gone out of my head entirely. <laughs> I can't remember, but he's he's another one playing his, playing his football in France at the moment at the highest level. So 
Like, I think for Tonga, it's it's a game changer to some degree. These guys are still also at an age where they've got a few years left in them as well. It's not, you know, they're not mid-30s, they're early 30s, late 20s. So that means they've got a bit of juice in the tank as well. And look, I know having spent a bit of time with Charles and Malachi, they are hugely motivated to put that jersey on and to put a flag in the in the ground and say, look, this is Tongan rugby and, and we're here and we're serious and we want to be a top 10 team. And I think maybe they can probably get there. The unfortunate thing for them is that they've been drawn in a World Cup pool um, where, you know, they've got um, South Africa, Ireland, Scotland in their pool. And that's like, that's the pool of death anyway. And now that Tonga look like they're going to be a fairly serious contender, they're going to do well to win a game other, you know, outside of maybe beating Romania, who are also in their pool. But there's no doubt that this eligibility change is a, is a start in terms of redressing the balance of how competitive the, the Pacific Island teams can be. Um, and there's obviously a few other changes that people would like to see made, would like to see you know, more regular rugby for these countries. All sorts of things could still happen. But as a, as a quick change, it's definitely brought an immediate impact and we'll, and we'll hopefully see, hopefully, one of the Pacific Island nations go through to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. I suppose uh, I look at the Tongan team and the Tongan coach himself, Dolte Gifu. What do you feel he's done different to somehow bring together this team? Because it looks like a really good team. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly the personnel that he's been able to get will will be transitional. But look, I think he's uh, he, he's given everyone uh, a sense of pride um, and a sense of optimism and ambition for the team which is powerful enough and believable enough, I think, for guys like Malachi, Charles, Via, Fafita, to all buy into this idea that, you know, this can go somewhere. This is the right thing to do. And I, and I think what he's powerfully done, and I think probably Fiji and Samoa have done the same thing, is he's made it clear who they're playing for. You know, they're playing for the families. They're playing for the people of Tonga. And, you know, it's a different experience to maybe the ones that, you know, when these guys, when Malachi and Charles played for the All Blacks, that was maybe a completely different experience for them to what they will have felt when they put that Akali Tahi jersey on the other day, sang the national anthem. You know, when they've been, they've been in Tonga for the last wee while, I think the emotional, almost be a spiritual connection for them uh, and for the entire team about, you know, what it is that it means to wear that jersey and play for Tonga. And I think that's hugely powerful and it'll be a different experience. And I think that's what Tutai Kefu's done really well. He's, he's connected them to something bigger than themselves and bigger than rugby. I love the way you've ended that off. It is a good thing for our Pacific nations uh, to represent who they are. Uh, Gregor, it is great to catch up with you. I hope we can do this again, uh, but appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. Climate change, well, yeah, it's a very politically charged term these days. So how do you teach kids about it without using those words? Uh, Teote and the Wall is a children's book written by Kiribati Australian woman Marita Davies. It's about her mum's quest to build a seawall around her home in the Pacific Island nation of Kiribati to protect it from rising sea levels. Uh, Teote Davies spoke to Radio Australia's Bobby McCumba for stories from the Pacific. You know, like I started to see, you know, like the sea coming in, eating the beaches of my place. You know, like my land was getting less and less and less. And I thought to myself, "Mm, this is no good. But Mm. and I looked at the beach. I looked at the sand from my land. 
and I couldn't do anything about it. So I got on my motorbike and went up the road because I thought I'd rather go away and not look at this problem. So I went away, rode up, um, rode up further, and um, the saddest thing was I saw people shifting their houses because the sea had washed their properties, their furnitures and, you know, like their, all their belongings were floating in the water. They were trying to just collect them and put them up further up. So I stood there and I thought to myself, my problem is not as big as these people's problem. Mm. No, they're losing a house. I'm, I'm, I haven't lost a house yet. So as I was watching them and I, I was, I felt so sorry for them. And I thought to myself, you know, what can the government do about this? You know, but it's not that. What can we do about it? So I asked them, you know, like I said, you know, so what are you going to do now? They said, oh, we're just going to live further up. We're going to build our house further up the road away from the beach. And mind you, everybody wanted to live beside the beach instead of on the other side of, because the sea breeze comes in, they sleep well during the night, they, you know, they have a beautiful view out there. But when this is happening, it was a beautiful thing. The sea was a beautiful thing, but now it's becoming a monster. You know, they didn't want to live beside it. I went home and I looked, surveyed, kind of surveyed, um, the place, and you must remember, I'm not an engineer, I'm just um, a teacher, you know, and I thought to myself, I'm going to build a wall to protect this. And I, it wasn't just that, it was thinking about my children, you know, Terina and Marita, thinking with their, you know, like, because in the meantime, I also, I've also built another house beside this one. So I thought to protect their interests, I will build a seawall. And so I built the sea wall. Mind you, um, Bobby, the sea was just coming in through the lounge room. It was yeah. scary. You sort, of, you sort of kind of, I mean, you, you're kind of excited about it, but at the same time, you're scared that this is not right. You know, like, how can we live with this water coming into the lounge room? Anyway, so I decided to build the sea wall. At that time, Bobby, climate change was coming. Well, you ask a Kiribati girl who lives on the sea about climate change. I've never seen climate change. I don't know about climate change. What is climate change? doesn't exist. But my problem exists, and my problem is protecting my place from the sea. And I started to imagine things like, oh, yeah, 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 I know about climate change. Climate change is affecting the fishermen. They're going further and further away to fish. I mean, that was my idea of climate change. The seawall wasn't my idea of climate change. My seawall was just a normal thing that I had to do. What, what did the men in the village say when they saw you building the wall? The men from further up, during, during the, when the tide comes in, they would come and swim right up to my place and they would admire my seawall. And then they say, if Tauti can build a seawall, a woman like her can build a seawall, why aren't we building a seawall? And I thought to myself, true. Ah. I love that, Auntie. That's, yeah, beautiful and empowering. Now, besides damaging property, what other impacts does the rising water have on the islets? Ah, this is a sad one. I attended one of my nephew's funeral at Teoretic. Mm. 
and they dug his grave. And then high tide hit. Bobby, that grave was full of water. The seawater. I looked at the grave and I said to my cousin, him, his mom, are you going to bury him in that water? Yeah. She looked at me and she said, what else? where else? That, and she said, the tide will go out. And his body, his grave, his, um, his coffin, you know, will be buried. And that's another, re- you know, that's, that was one um, one sad story of yeah. climate change. Not just that the water is um, killing the trees, coupled with the hot sun, the trees, the coconut trees are down. The coconuts are getting smaller and smaller. Um, mm. Not just that, but the people are not getting enough fresh water to drink. And yeah. I, I, re- um, I heard a story about there's a place in Bondiki, right, uh, near the airport, and that um, water catchment. And so when that water goes, goes, you know, like gets salty, well, then it's no good. Yeah. Mm. But that's um, the other, you know, like the sea is just uh, horrendous, just scary, you know. Yeah. Very scary. I think the islands are getting thinner, in my opinion. Mm. The the islands are getting thinner. It's sad. It is. It, it is very sad and and terrifying. Mm. Auntie, your daughter Marita turned your story of building the wall into a kids' book. How did it feel? I was sort of. I didn't know what to say. I felt very excited, very proud, very, you know, like I wanted everyone to know that there's a book about me that my my mm. daughter wrote, and it's Tati <laughs> and the and the wall. You know, I want, you know, like it's a beautiful story. It is a beautiful story, and I'm sure lots of kids in Kiribati will enjoy that as well and learn a lot. Mm. Now, at at the back of the kids' book, there is a question: Can Teote's wall withstand the strength of the ocean? Do you think it can? With maintenance, it can for now. Mm-hmm. The waves will keep on penetrating through that wall. Auntie, will your job of building a seawall ever stop? No. Yeah. No, because I will forever run my eyes over the seawall every day. And that was Tiate Davies speaking with Radio Australia's Bobby McCumba about the kids' book based on her quest to build a seawall to protect her home in Kiribati from rising sea levels. That brings us to the end of another edition of Pacific Beat. Uh, you can also hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time, but I'll be back tomorrow at 6am PNG time. For any of our stories, make sure you head to our website. Just type ABC Pacific Beat in your search engine. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next. Follow by Jacob McGuire on Nisha Daily. Until next time, I'm Aggie DeBall. Thanks for your company right here on Pacific Beat.